This morning's scripture reading is from chapter 23 of the book of Joshua. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you, not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish, perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. This is God's word. Uh, Katie celebrated her birthday this past Monday. And I got her a gift that I ordered to a United States address and will pick up when I go to perform a wedding there in a few weeks. And because there are few things less romantic than surprising your wife with an invoice describing her gift along with shipping and handling charges. I asked her what else she would like for her birthday that I could get her here. And, and I made various overtures, right? The bouquet of flowers, candies, the picnic dinner out on the beach, the massage, you know? And she rejected all of those. Instead, she looked me in the eye and said, Ryan, I want a fighting fish that I can put in a bowl on our dinner table. <laughs> Seriously? A, a fighting fish? A fish for your birthday? 
And what 30-something-year-old woman asked for a fish on her birthday? My wife, and I love her for it. Now, they're quite striking fish in appearance, and I know she was also thinking of our kids who would certainly enjoy this fish. Uh, So now we have a fish named Lucy, who is in a large jar on our dinner table. And in the midst of my, no doubt, thoughtful and romantic offers, Katie reminded me of what is often true Ryan, you often think of loving me how you think best, but I'm glad you finally wised up enough to ask me how I feel most loved. And if you're married, I know you can relate to this kind of situation. And it's also the case really when we relate to God. He loves us, and he has decisively shown us this love through Jesus Christ. And I hope and pray that we would want to love him back. And yet, something I often hear is, you know, I love, I serve, I worship God in my own way. And is that how you feel loved? When someone loves you according to their needs and their preferences, but not yours? The verse that I believe drives chapter 23 of Joshua, is verse 11, where we're told, be very careful, therefore, to love Yahweh, your God. He has taken great care in how he has loved his people. He's driven others off their land. He has given them this kind of fertile land to match their agricultural abilities And on and on and on. He has taken care in how he has loved them, according to not only their preferences, but especially their needs. So we are called to take great care in how we love him in return. And so this morning's message is entitled, The How. We're going to consider together how to best love God because he has so loved us. Now, in reading this passage, the lens of the New Testament, which we have the blessing of doing, uh, Jesus and also the Apostle Paul offer pretty clear starting places in terms of how God wishes to be loved. John 14, 21 says this, whoever knows my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. The Apostle Paul expresses a similar thought, puts it a little differently. When he says this, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no person can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ to do good works, which God created beforehand, that we should walk in them. So it's interesting, in John 14, 21, we get this idea of both knowing the commands and doing them. It's foreshadowing a bit for later, but Paul spells out that those commands as obeying the works don't save us. God freely saves us through trust in Jesus and what he did, but he saves us for work. He saves us from work for work. Joshua here gathers all the people. 
And he offers them two key examples of such work, which they should do in response to the work God has accomplished for them. God has done work, therefore, we read starting in verse 6, therefore, be strong to keep and to do. There's that theme again. Knowing and doing the word of God. Keep and do all that's written in the book of the law of Moses, which is their Bible at this time. Turning aside from it, neither to the right nor to the left, that you might not mix with these nations from among you, make mention of the names of their gods, swear by them, bow down to them. And then skipping ahead to verse 12. If you turn and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them, associating with them, creating strong ties with them, know for certain the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations for you, but they shall become a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides, thorns in your eyes until you perish. Skipping down to verse 16. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, there's going to be anger. Breaking this down a little, just summarizing it. Work hard to read your Bible... (laughs) And find out what God says about relating to your neighbors and the culture around you. And find out what it says about this idea of double worship. I.e. trying to worship both God and simultaneously worship those things that your neighbor worships. If I had to break that down, that's how I would break it down. Is that fair? I think it's fair. These are a couple examples. So consider the timing of when Joshua gathers all of Generation Next and encourages them to take care of how they love God. Here are a couple lofty examples of the work you should do to love God back. The timing of this. They had just finished this massive work God had assigned to them. They were fighting to secure the land that God promised them. Each little piece of land for each tribe God had promise them. You may have noticed that we skipped 12 chapters. I don't know if you noticed that. We skipped 12 chapters and about two decades uh, because they are full of God's people working to secure this land that he had given them. So there's this tension there. God had given it to them, but they were working to secure it. And in the midst of this, spending most of their adult life on this work, think about it. Most of their adult life doing this, striving for this. God seems to ask them here in Joshua 23 to go on to do more and then better work. Can you imagine what they're thinking? They spent most of their adults' lives working for the singular purpose. Just try for a moment. Put yourself in their sandals, right? And try to feel what they are feeling. And I know that most of you can. Because this morning, God continues to ask us to be careful, to do more and better work in response to what he's done for us. And yet when I look out, I see weariness. I see tiredness. I see fatigue. So many of you feel like everywhere I turn, someone is asking me, either explicitly or implicitly, either in the workplace or at home or in friendships, to work more, to work harder, to work better. And if you feel that this morning, raise your hand. Yeah. 
how then can I possibly do more and more perfect work, even when it's for Jesus? And that's the question we not only will, but we need to explore during the rest of our time. Let's first look at why even the question itself exhausts us. And then we're going to look at the key from Joshua 23 that will transform our work to make it more and more perfect. Friends, I don't think it's the work so much that makes us tired, but it's the scrambling. Let me explain what I mean. You and I were created for work. We were created for work. We know this from experience. We get moody, we get down, we get depressed, we get lethargic, we get cabin fever. If we go for long periods of time, long periods of time without purposeful work. I got a message this week from someone in our church whose spouse works, and they're expressing the desire for a job. They said, basically, I would just really like something to do. And if I get a little extra cash, that would be nice too. It wasn't so much the cash, it was the idea of, I I want something to do. And Scripture affirms this. When God created Adam, there was no sin, no rebellion, no frustration, but there was work. There was work. Adam worked and he tended the garden in which he was placed. We see clearly in Genesis chapter 2. Likewise, from what we read ahead in Revelation, especially about heaven, there will be this creative kind of work, this creative kind of growth. All of it pain-free, and we'll have no longer any need for HR departments. It'll be perfect. But there is work. So I don't think it's the work per se that presses upon us this utter fatigue as much as the scrambling while we work. What is this scrambling? Well, when Adam and Eve give in to the serpent, and they cease trusting in God's goodness, which they express through partaking in this forbidden fruit, they go from a state of contentment and living with and working for God to a state of scrambling. You know what I mean by that? Scrambling around, doing things they weren't meant to do. They first, what do they do? What's their response after partaking of this fruit? They cover up, they hide, they fear, and they blame. They cover up, right? Neither Adam nor Eve express sorrow or emotion to each other. They don't even say anything to each other about their sin. Like they just don't talk about it. Instead, they recognize individually what they did, and then they set about covering their rear ends, right? In this case, literally. Then they hide, Genesis 3, 8 through 10. They hide specifically what? From responsibility. That hiding, there's this fear. And finally, in verses 11 through 13, we see this blame of one another and then of God. They work for God contentedly, and then they scramble. Work becomes utterly exhausting in the scrambling we try to do to fix our imperfection. Just as Adam and Eve tried to fix theirs. We cover up, right, with exaggerations, with insinuations, with little white lies. Sometimes in our work, and we then try to make sure others are on board, and we have to work harder to cover it up. 
Sometimes we, we escape responsibility through lowering standards. Sometimes we hide from confrontation, from bosses, from clients, or from other kinds of work, from our spouses, from our children, from our friends, from our pastors. Fear. Fear can drive so much scrambling and bring about so much exhaustion, right? We feel obligated, you know, to respond to emails, to Facebook messages, to texts while we're working, and lest others think less of you. We say yes to too many persons and to their responsibilities out of fear of not getting their approval. Scrambling, scrambling while we work. We scratch and we claw for longer hours, into longer hours for fear sometimes of losing our job, even though that's not really there. In the first Rocky movie, the first Rocky movie, which you know is the only good Rocky movie, Let's face it, there's been like six. There's six Rocky movies. All right, and at one point, Rocky is this boxer. He's questioned about why he trains every minute, every second he's awake, right? He's running upstairs. He's trekking through Little Italy in Philadelphia, going past the art museum. And he responds to his gal, Adrian. Adrian. You remember her? (laughs) He responds to his girl saying, I want to go the distance. Then I'll know, then I'll finally know I'm not just another bum. He scrambles. And if you watch the movies, you know this. Even though he conquers his opponent, you know that he persistently threatens the relationships around him. He frequently hurts himself, and he is never satisfied. Why? Because he is scrambling. He is constantly trying to cover up his shortcomings because he fears falling short and finishing imperfectly as another bum. We can relate to this. What's needed is rest. We need rest. By which I don't mean more sleep, uh, nor do I necessarily mean taking a Sabbath day of rest, although both of these actions can be practical outworkings of what I mean. But you and I both know that neither getting more sleep nor taking more time off instantly cures scrambling. Our hearts and our minds oftentimes, you know this maybe from taking holidays, are still going 100 miles per hour. We need a deeper rest. A rest from our outer and our inner scrambling that takes place in our hearts. And that's the key, both here in Joshua 23 and in our lives today, for ending scrambling and doing actually more and better work. Rest. It's rest. Rest is a major theme here in Joshua. We haven't talked about it much so far, so I just want to give you a couple instances, a few instances of where we see it happening, the thread throughout Joshua. Starting in Joshua 1, verses 13 through 15. Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest. And I'm going to give you this land. Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he is to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God has given you. Joshua eleven twenty three. So Joshua took the whole land according to um, all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave this land as an inheritance to Israel according to the tribal allotment, and the land had rest from war. Joshua fourteen twenty five or fourteen fifteen, sorry. Uh, now the name of Hebron was known as Kiriath Arba, 
Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. Moving ahead to Joshua 22, 4 and 5. Now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law that, the Moses, that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love your God and to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and to cling to him. And finally here in chapter 23, for the last time, we read, the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies. And so we finally see this culmination of the whole land getting rest as Joshua is old and well advanced in years. Finally, rest has been achieved. What we observe, though, about this rest, if you saw it here, is is notice it's not a retirement rest, right? It's not a, I'm 65, want to retire to Florida or to wherever you might want to retire. Notice it's a rest from war, this warring, this fighting. He doesn't deliver them to a land for their own life of leisure, right, and comfort, but he delivers them there so that they can be free to obey. Free to obey. God knows his people do their best work for him when their scrambling ceases and their hearts are at rest so they can serve and obey him and do his work. And you know that's true. You've experienced at least a glimpse of this when you are freed from covering up, from fear, from hiding, from angling. You can lose yourself purely in the work and be free to produce, to serve, to do something creative, something original, something noble, something worthy. Today, friends, you can consistently have such rest which produces more and perfect work. I'm going to share with you three steps already accomplished to give you such an arrest. Three steps here, okay? First of all, we're going to see that Jesus Christ substitutes his perfect work for our imperfect work. We're also going to see that Jesus worked to give you rest. And finally, Jesus gives us rest so that our work would be more imperfect. So first, Jesus Christ substitutes his perfect for our imperfect work. Joshua makes it clear that it is God who has accomplished the work which they can never do on their own. Right? Verses 3 through 5, he says this, You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these nations for your sake. Right? Verse 4, Behold, I have allotted to you as an adherence for your tribes these nations that remain along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan. Verse 5, The Lord your God will push them back Drive them out of your sight. Now, why is there a future tense in verse 5? He says, I have done this, I have done this, I will do this. Well, one of the things we miss, glossing over chapters 11 through 22, is that the various tribes among God's people often fell short of driving out all the people from the land. For whatever reasons, they don't end up kicking all the tenants out. All right, sometimes they come up short. But God promises he will finish the work where they fall short, where they weren't able to get all the people off their land and inherit all of it for each little tribe, God will accomplish the rest of the work where they fall short. Notice how he puts it in verses 9 through 10. I like this. For the Lord your God has driven out before you great and strong nation. As for you, no man has been able to stand before you this day. One man of you Puts to flight a thousand since the Lord your God fights for you. 
one man puts to flight a thousand. Today, friends, one man puts to flight all that assails us and finishes a perfect work that we couldn't complete. If we're honest, all of us, whether you're here and you know Jesus or you come because you're curious, all of us sense what we do isn't enough. And yet we also sense perfection is out there. That's why we keep toiling. We keep scrambling, trying to get better. And we don't realize is that the perfect life has already been lived in and by Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus' last words on the cross are, it is finished. Oftentimes we think that's referring to his death. But no, no, it's referring to his life. My life on this earth is complete. I have finished what they could not. And so that those who trust that Jesus is the Son of God are credited with his finished and perfect work. So, the first step to rest as it applies to you is believing that there is a perfect work out there and it was accomplished by Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. Second thing, Jesus worked to give us rest. Jesus credits his perfect work to us to allow us to rest from proving ourselves, from covering ourselves, from blaming others because of our imperfections. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. All right? And I think you'll see why we need to go there. Hebrews, by the way, it's in the New Testament. It's past all the letters of Paul. It's kind of towards the back. It's got 13 chapters. We're going to look at chapter 4. And we're going to focus on verses, starting in verses 8 through 10. The author of Hebrews says this, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to fail to have reached it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith, united by trust with those who listened. Now we're going to go ahead and skip down to verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, right, given God's people rest, Joshua had given them rest. God would not have spoken of another day of rest later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Stop there. Learned a couple things here. First of all, we learned that Joshua and generation next. Hebrews tells us, never fully enter into God's rest. Right? They get the land, but they never fully enter into God's rest. And that shouldn't surprise us because work is always imperfect. They're driving out the people. It's always imperfect before the God-man Jesus Christ arrived. Work is always imperfect before Jesus arrives on the scene who lived the perfect life that we could not. We learn a second thing here from these verses, and that is we can now, through Jesus, rest from our works. More specifically, rest from doing works, believing that they will make us perfect before God, in the sight of God. We can rest through Jesus from our scrambling. 
if we keep going in these verses, we're going to see that it's not a rest from work itself. Look in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Do you see that with those words there? If by rest we mean sleep rest, retirement rest, resting on the seventh day, we wouldn't be told to strive. Yet there's this strange paradox here. Strive to enter rest. Because the author is not talking about inner rest. Sorry, he is talking about inner rest, I should say. Uh, that no one may fall short by the same type of disobedience. He's referring back to verse 2 here, where the type of disobedience is a failure to trust this good news that Jesus has completed the work that we couldn't. Strive to enter that rest, knowing that Jesus has completed this work. Jesus gives us rest then so that our work can be more and perfect. He goes on to say, so let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and joint, spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. St. Augustine once famously said, our hearts remain restless until they find their rest in Christ. And how much you rest or how hard you work. If you don't find your rest in Christ, your heart will remain restless. When we find rest through Christ's work, we no longer have to scramble. We are free to do more and perfect work. We do our best work from a posture of rest. Now, I wish I could end the sermon there this morning. All right, maybe you do too. Like, yeah, good idea. But, but to do so, I, I was tempted, but to do so, do we ignore a pattern in each of these scriptures about discovering how to love God more and more perfectly? Oh, there's a cool pattern here, and I want to share it with you. In Joshua 22, Joshua 23, and Hebrews 4, Right after we are told that this rest is accomplished, God asks for a very specific response. Did you notice this? If you didn't, let's look at it together. First Joshua 22, 4 and 5. Now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers, as he promised them. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandment. Know the commandments. Know God's word and do it. Joshua 23, 5 and 6. You shall possess the land just as God promised you. Therefore, be strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, their Bible at the time, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. Hebrews 4. Let us strive to enter that rest that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning thoughts and intentions. No creatures hidden from his sight, all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we have to give an account. Did you see this pattern? Rest. We're at rest through Christ. How do we stay at rest and do more perfect work? Turn to God's word. Turn to God's word. Turn to God's word. Stay in God's word. How can I be careful then to love God? In a nutshell, start by resting in Jesus' perfect work 
and then find out the more and perfect work he wants you to do. Let me say that one more time. Start by resting in Jesus' perfect work and then find out the more and perfect work he wants you to do. Christians often refuse to read God's word. We make excuses. We say this, that, the other. There are many reasons why, but perhaps two main reasons are because of what people find when they read what God has to say. And that is, there are truths you rarely want to do or hear. You find in here truths you rarely want to do or hear, right? Truths you rarely want to do, obedience. Truths you rarely want to hear, conviction. And we heard that here in some of these verses, right? Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, does that sound pleasant, what we read above? No, it sounds like the Bible lays you out naked on a surgeon's table. (laughs) People fear that, generally speaking. You know, they go under for that. It's not pleasant. It doesn't sound pleasant. But those are also the means by which God continues to keep our hearts at rest and grows us to do more and better work. So we have these two parallel lines. That's my funny diagram on the notes this morning going there. These are the means by which God keeps our hearts at rest and grows us. How? When we hear we aren't working up to God's spoken standard, we are driven back to Christ and his perfect work while simultaneously learning new ways to love God with our works. Does that make sense? The former, being driven back to Christ, puts our hearts at rest to do the latter, to do what he asks us to do, to love him how he asks us to love him. The piercing conviction that drives us back to Jesus' perfect work frees us to do the more and more perfect work because we are no longer under the threat of falling short. Jesus has perfectly worked it out for us through the cross because of his, the life he lived and the death he died. And that frees us then to see what God has to say. Ow, frees us to do it. Now let me tie this back to where we started from at the beginning being careful how we love the Lord our God. And the idea that we often say in our hearts, man, I like and I love, worship, serve God in my own way. Different people express love to God through song, through, through prayer, using spiritual gifts, how they treat other people, all of which is great and necessary. But without the Bible and putting yourself consistently in front of the Bible, you will miss out on enlarging ways he asks to be loved and maintaining your heart at rest to do those things. I'll give you an example. I had a friend years ago who felt God spoke to him through prayer regarding doing something big for God. Something huge. It's awesome. But, but as time went by, Even though he prayed, he since God had told him this, that big thing didn't come to fruition. He tried to line up people and things, and he he pleaded with God, and he asked, why? Why isn't this happening? Finally, I asked him, how often do you take time to read the Bible for what God says he wants? And and he was very candid and said, man, honestly, I'm pretty sporadic. You know, he said if he, if he gets inspired to read something, he'll read it. Or, or if someone mentions to him a verse, he'll kind of look it up. So he began to wake up early and regularly put himself in front of God's word. 
And he said it beat him up. It drove him to the cross. But he also said that tenderized his heart, that prepared his heart and made him ready for the day. He came across 1 Corinthians 12, which basically explains how each person who has trusted Jesus is given a gift with which to serve the church. And he came to me and he said, Ryan, I, I really thought God had given me this skill and to even do this big thing. What I didn't know is God given me a skill that I was supposed to use it to serve my local church. So he began to serve. It was nothing fancy. He started to help teach second graders in children's ministry at his church. But there, while he was teaching, he met two other leaders who were equally passionate to reach people on his campus with this big thing. And then sooner rather than later, the big thing God called him to do came to fruition. It looked a little different than he first imagined it. Partially because now he was doing alongside people who were equally committed to searching the scriptures for a more and perfect work that God was wanting them to do and doing it together. Let's pray. Father, I know there's some dear friends this morning who are scrambling in their hearts. Who know, who recognize they're honest, that the, the work they do, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in the life they live, whether it's at home, whether it's amongst friends, whether it's in their you know, time out on a weekend, Lord, it's, that it's imperfect work. They've scrambled, fearing, covering up, blaming, toiling to try to make something perfect that can only be perfect, perfected, through the work that Jesus Christ did and the life he lived and the death he died. So, Father, I pray first of all for my friends who maybe have never trusted Christ, who've never seen that it was Christ who lived the perfect life that we couldn't and died the death that we deserve. Father, I pray that you would put their hearts in rest by trusting Jesus. And, Father, I pray that out of that trust for all of us, out of that trust, we would ask you what you want us to do. How do you want to be loved, Lord? And we see in the scriptures the pattern again and again, putting ourselves before the law, putting ourselves before what God says in his word. Father, that it might convict us that we need Jesus again, and that would free us, though, to do more and to do perfect work, Lord. Chains are gone. We've been set free. We can do what you called us to do and do it in this amazing, passionate, creative, fruitful way. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.